You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Today, uh, we're going to be taking a look at uh, Genesis chapter 3. So uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage, uh, that's going to be our main text. And as we look at the promise of a Savior, that's the title of our series, and it's also a title of today's message, because uh, we're going to be looking at just that, the promise that God made to us to bring salvation, to send a Savior to save us from our sins. And we can rejoice in that. And uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, and then looking in the New Testament at various passages that speak to the fulfillment of the promises made to us in Genesis 3. So let's go ahead and read this passage together, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now this doesn't inspire you to say Merry Christmas, does it? Right? 
but you'd be surprised to see, from, well, from a cursory glance anyway, but as we look at this text, we're going to see that the promise of salvation is evidenced several times in this text. And it brings great encouragement that in the midst of the curse of sin and the condemnation uh, that we justly deserve, uh, there is a way, there's a hope, a promise of a Savior. But let's review uh, the curses that we see or the penalties of sin. We see God's good creation of man and woman turn rebels against God and join ranks with the ones who only plans our destruction, Satan. We took that goodness of God, that close intimate fellowship with him in the garden, rejected him and went and followed Satan's ways, uh, which ultimately lead to our destruction. We see the curse of pain in childbearing. We see the curse of conflict between husbands and wives and men and women in general, that battle of the sexes uh, that goes on in our world. We see the curse of the ground and the hardship associated with work. We see Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden and kept from coming back in. We see that before we would live forever in communion with God, now we are separated from God and will die. Bad news. Like I said, not necessarily inspiring to say Merry Christmas. Normally, uh, as we go through the holidays, uh, we, we have all the trappings of Christmas, right? Uh, coffee drinks, gingerbread lattes, right? Those are good. Eggnog lattes, uh, Christmas lights. Last night, uh, my wife and I were putting up Christmas lights around the house, and our, our three-year-old daughter, it was so exciting for her to see that. It was all sorts of fun for her, and just uh, all the preparation that we go into the holiday season. Or driving around and looking at the Christmas lights people have put up uh, on their houses and in their neighborhoods. Uh, so there's all sorts of things uh, that we do uh, traditionally uh, in, our, in our culture uh, that produces a sentiment, a positive sentiment, uh, an emotional state, if you will, of celebration, of happiness. And of course, especially for little children as they're anticipating the gifts they'll receive. But obviously, this is not what Christmas is about. These all point to the ultimate gift that we received in Jesus Christ. And so, like I said, as we look at this text, we're going to see how the promise of a Savior was present from the very beginning, even in the midst of the curse of sin. So let's take a look, uh, particularly at verse 15. This is where uh, many see the first promise of the gospel given to us. I'll read that verse to you again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So let's take this uh, verse apart a little bit. When it says that phrase, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, uh, this is referring to how there's gonna be a conflict between the followers of Satan, namely unbelievers, and this was all of us before we became saved, and it's gonna create a conflict between unbelievers and the followers of Christ, uh, those, of, those of us who are now redeemed. And as you recall, you might, uh, before you were saved, if you're old enough, you might have thought, uh, you might have been indifferent to Christians or to God, uh, and that's just part of that sinful state, to not acknowledge him as, as God Almighty and worthy of your worship. Uh, or you might have been those that might have persecuted Christians. You might have taunted them, made fun of them, or thought they were weird. Uh, and so you can see this conflict, this enmity uh, that goes on in this world between the followers of Christ and those that who, re who reject Christ. But then it goes on in this verse to talk about how he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of Eve is Jesus Christ, and he'll have ultimate victory over Satan and the power of death. And so while Satan uh, tempted Adam and Eve, and they rejected God and followed after him and brought on all the destruction, all the curse of sin, uh, because they rejected God, Christ is going to come and undo all that. He's going to defeat Satan, and we'll see that in the coming verses, how he does that. But we also see 
the grace of God and that, the, that we as believers, while we have ultimate salvation to look forward to, we as believers here on this earth can experience the power of God uh, to resist persecution and to stand firm in the faith. We can resist temptation in the wiles of the devil. Uh, we can walk in obedience. In fact, we're more than overcomers through the power of Christ. And so you see this brought out here as we look at, as we're going to look at some passages in the New Testament at how this is being fulfilled specifically in our lives, even now. Paul references this idea in, uh, from Genesis 3.15 in his letter to the church at Rome. In Romans 16:17 through 20, I'll read this to you. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Here's verse uh, Genesis 3.15. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so here we see uh, the church at Rome. Uh, they're faced with false teachers teaching doctrines that lead people astray from the truth of the gospel, the hope that we have in Christ. And we also see the, uh, the temptation to sin and all the things uh, that work against what God has done for us. And so by the grace of God, we can see fulfillment in this and that while there is enmity, we will experience these things, temptation and persecution and whatnot, uh, but we are more than overcomers by the grace of God. And ultimately this finds its fulfillment and we have the power to be overcomers because Jesus Christ crushed Satan under his feet. The author of Hebrews explains this further, uh, how this happened. And perhaps you've wondered, uh, what are the mechanics of salvation? Why did it have to go down the way it did? Why did Jesus Christ have to come to earth? Why didn't he just undo all this in Genesis chapter three, uh, when, all, when the fall happened? Well, we don't know the wisdom of God, but I think we can see as we look throughout human history, we can see the steadfast love of God for sinners. We can see his mighty works and the hope, the promise of salvation throughout human history if we're paying attention. And we can rejoice in this. So I think part of it, just my opinion, is that God wanted to reveal the beauty of his character so that we could see it. He put himself on display so that people can see the glory of God. And as he gives us salvation, we can see that and ultimately we'll see it perfectly when we see him face to face. But let's uh, take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, after reading this, you, you see that first idea. Uh, we share in flesh and blood. We're humans. And so Jesus, likewise, took on flesh and blood. And we see this uh, being foretold uh, out of Isaiah uh, chapter 7. But we read that here in our call to worship. Christ came in the flesh, uh, coming in the flesh was, was prophesied. And it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. And if you've read the Old Testament before and you've uh, just paid attention to the, the common themes that go throughout, there's a tension. 
right? There's a tension between the wickedness of sin and its penalty, and yet the God of promise who, who takes care of people shows him his steadfast love and promises a Messiah to come in the future. The prophets long to see this. And so that tension was ultimately fulfilled when Christ came to this earth. And when you read through the gospel accounts of uh, the coming of Christ, uh, people recognized it. People recognized this is what the prophets were talking about in the Old Testament. The Messiah has come, and they greatly rejoiced in it. And so it was foretold that Jesus would come in the flesh. But why did he have to come in the flesh? Did he come just to be a good example uh, to, to greet us in person? If that was the only reason, it wasn't uh, sufficient because we know that we can't save ourselves and we can't just follow a moral example. If you look at the Old Testament, they had the law before them and they failed. And if we were back in that time, we would have done the same thing. So just having the law and a moral example uh, wouldn't be sufficient to save us. But the reason why Christ came in the flesh was to die. That manger scene that we all celebrate, as precious as that, that is, he didn't come uh, just to be cute. He came to die for our sins. But why did he have to die? Why couldn't there have been some other way? Well, we see in Leviticus 17:11 it says, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I God have given it to you or for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life." And so in the Old Testament, if you recall the sacrificial system where they had to sacrifice uh, various animals for sins committed, and every year was, there was that day of atonement to cover the sins of all the people, uh, this was a practice that God gave them to atone for their souls. Now, mind you, it was temporary. That's why it had to be done over and over and over again. And what a burden that must have been. But it was necessary as God had instituted it to atone for their souls. But it was pointing to a better sacrifice a perfect sacrifice. And we'll see here in Hebrews 9, chapter 22, it references this idea again. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we see that Jesus had to die to pay for our sins. It was absolutely necessary. It's according to his sovereign plan that it was that way. I'm gonna continue reading in chapter nine because it gives a fuller picture of what happened uh, when Christ died on the cross for us. In verse 23, it says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest did, and he entered the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin as he already has, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. And so we see uh, the unfolding of God's plan of salvation fulfilled in Christ, he had to come to earth in the flesh because he had to die. And in so dying, our sins are forgiven. So this morning, if you trust in Christ as your savior, your sins are forgiven right now. And you have the hope of eternal life uh, to be with him forever uh, waiting for you. And this concept here brings us back to Hebrews 2. As you recall, uh, in dying and being raised again, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death. 
He had to come to destroy the power of death because that was part of the curse, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Now think of the rich blessing of this truth. Without Christ, sin and death had its grip on us with no hope of escape. We had no hope in and of ourselves. We were destined to live and then die. Live in our sins and die because of our sins and then uh, spend eternity justly condemned by God in hell. But because of what Christ has done, because of this promise of redemption that was already evident in this, this passage and we see it fulfilled in Christ, we have hope, a sure hope, not wishful thinking, but a sure hope that will happen. And this is evidence in the fact that Christ did come. That was promised throughout the Old Testament. As I said, Nick is going to be talking about some of those passages. Uh, but uh, yeah, we can see that he fulfilled, fulfilled that promise. How much more then is he going to fulfill the promise to come a second time uh, to take us home to be with him? Now we are free from the power of death. Sin and death have no power for, over us. We, are, we can overcome temptation. And ultimately, when we die, uh, we will be with, be with Christ for all eternity. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll read this passage to you. It's uh, verses 50 through 58. And it just speaks to the idea of the richness of the salvation and the blessing that salvation brings to us. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, written death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So looking at uh, that first verse, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In our human state, in our unregenerate state, we cannot uh, be with God. We cannot go to heaven. However, because Christ died in our place, he has conquered the power of sin and death. And so that now we can rejoice. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? We are victors through Jesus Christ, not only against the temptations uh, that we face here in this world now, but ultimately uh, when we die, instead of going to hell to be condemned and separated from God for all eternity, we will go to be with him in heaven. It's a gateway to paradise. It's a gateway back to the garden uh, that, uh, that currently we are barred from. And so we can rejoice in this. Now there's more out of this text here in Genesis chapter three that speaks to the, the plan of redemption and God's merciful heart, his loving kindness uh, that he has towards sinners. Look at Genesis 3.21. And it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So here we see that God in his mercy makes them sufficient clothes from animal skins. Now many see this as the first sacrifice of an animal to show that blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. So God here is atoning for the souls of Adam and Eve. And this process will continue throughout the Old Testament uh, rituals of sacrifice to temporarily atone for their souls until the perfect sacrifice comes. But there's also another picture here of God's grace to be seen. If you recall Adam and Eve, when they first realized their sinfulness, when they first realized that they were naked, what did they do? 
They sewed fig leaves together. Well, what do we know about leaves? What happens when we pull them from a vine or from a branch? In a very short while, they shrivel up, they dry up, and then if you grab them, they, they crinkle up and fall to the ground and turn to dust. This is a picture of the impossibility that we can atone for our own sins. It speaks to the impossibility that we can cover our sins before God and be made right with him. Just as Adam and Eve uh, chose uh, fig leaves to cover themselves and those things will decay quickly, uh, so we, we also can't uh, cover for our own sins. Conversely though, what happens to animal skins? Think of leather jackets. We probably already had one, uh, have all had one or so. Uh, they last indefinitely if you take care of them. Ultimately, you'll either give them away because they're out of style or uh, they'll become family heirlooms, whatever, uh, but it lasts a long time. And this is a picture of how God's atoning sacrifice for our sin is perfect. It's all sufficient. And so you see the contrast here. You see the mercy of God portrayed uh, in these pictures that we can see in this text, uh, particularly here in verse 21. And yet there's another example of God's mercy in this text. If we look at verses 22 through 24, I'll go ahead and read those to you. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every, guard, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so here we see in the curse that Adam and Eve were excluded or kicked out of the garden. That once perfect fellowship that they had with God, there was no knowledge of evil. It was just perfect innocence. And they enjoyed his, his perfect blessings. Uh, there was no curse of the ground or anything like that. Everything was well. And so it's bad news to have the curse of sin upon them and to be excluded from the garden. But yet, even in this, there's mercy. And here's how. If in their sinfulness they can access the tree of life, they will live forever. Think about that. A bunch of sinners, biased towards sin, no desire for God naturally, living forever. Think of how that would manifest itself. Think of uh, the wicked things we could conjure up if we live forever. And then also think of the curses of sin. Those would last forever with no hope, uh, no sight, or no hope in sight that it would ever end. And so it's a bad thing if they have access to the tree of life. And so this is the mercy of God, uh, that he, he doesn't let that happen. And think about this too, if humans can't die, then Christ can't come and die. And remember, that was necessary. He had to come in the flesh and die to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. If humans live forever and can't die, well, Christ can't come to the earth and die. Now, this is hypothetical, bear in mind. It's not like God's plan of salvation could have failed at any attempt. Uh, he is perfectly wise. What this really shows is his perfect wisdom, the beauty of his plan of salvation. And uh, there's no way, there were no loopholes, there's nothing he would have forgotten. We make plans for all sorts of things, and more often than not, probably, if, if uh, we're honest, uh, we forget things, right? And we have to go back and, and resolve those kinds of things as we move forward with our plan. But God, this doesn't happen because he is perfect and all-knowing and all-wise, and his plan of salvation could not fail. And so now, while we're currently barred from the tree of life, we will have access to it again in heaven. Let me read to you a passage from Romans 22, 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him forever. So going from Genesis 3 now to the, the other end of the scriptures in Revelation, we see what the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15 and alluded to in these other passages will be ultimately fulfilled at the end when Christ returns and takes us to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And look what it says here. Uh, we will have access to God's life-giving blessings, the tree of life. It'll be just like Adam and Eve experienced it in the garden, except this time there will be no chance for the fall. Uh, nothing will be accursed. There will be no consequences of sin and no possibility uh, that sin will ever enter. So all those sinful desires that we struggle with, all the remnants of the curse of sin will, will not be present. It won't even be possible. And while we wait for Christ's return, we can experience the blessings of his grace even now. So let's revisit the stipulations of the curse and see how God's mercy and his blessing uh, are overturning that and reversing that. So where once we were enemies of God, now we are sons and daughters of God. We're reconciled to him, no longer enemies, but we are united in fellowship with him through Christ. While there still is pain in childbearing, a mother's love is drawn to her child. And here's the most important part. She can share the hope of the gospel with her children. Before, without Christ, without these promises we see in Genesis 3, there would be no hope. There would be no hope to share. But now, because of Christ, uh, there's hope of the gospel to share with children. Where sinful desire causes conflict between husbands and wives, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we obey his commands, we can live in harmony with one another. While it is hard work to produce a living, we can enjoy the work and the fruits of our labor and be a blessing to others with it. So while work is still hard, whether you're working the fields or you're starting a business or working for a company, there's all sorts of hardship. Uh, it seems like things are working against you at times to be successful. Uh, but yet we can enjoy the work that we have, the callings that we have, and enjoy the fruits of our labor. We can enjoy good things uh, with the resources and the money that we earn. And, and most importantly, we can be a blessing to others with it, to those who are in need, to those that are suffering or struggling. Uh, we can be a blessing to them. And while Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and denied the tree of life, it was an act of mercy so that a savior could come. And indeed that savior has come as we celebrate this Advent season. And we hope for the return of him uh, very soon. And while we were sentenced to die for our sins, now we can have eternal life through Christ and will one day have access to the tree of life again. So to these things we can celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of God, not only in this life, but for the life to come. Regardless of sin and its penalty, we are free in Christ. We are free from the power of sin, free from the power of death, and we have a hope of eternal life in Christ. So to these things, we can say Merry Christmas. Amen? You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.